Today, when leadership is discussed, we usually purport to be discussing what leaders do rather than what they say, as if this were a more clear-eyed approach. The truth is, when we look closely, we see leadership as much as what our leaders symbolize, as in what they accomplish. Whatever the case, our obsession with leadership seems to be constant, if not growing. The mythology of leadership, however, can be a growing source of frustration if we don't come to a more clear-eyed sense about why this is so and why it matters to us. Leaders, Myth and Reality examines not only individual traits of leaders we dub geniuses, heroes, reformers, power brokers, zealots, and founders, but the mythology behind, behind why and how we as humans follow such people, whether for good or bad. We find that as we learn more about those that we follow, we learn more about ourselves and our desires for inspiration and guidance. This morning, we welcome the 14th president of the National Athletic Trainers Association, Tori Lindley, to dive deeper into the three myths of leadership and how we define leaders, leadership in our ever-changing and evolving profession. Tori, welcome back to the Sports Medicine Broadcast, and good morning, Jeremy. Good morning to both of you. Thanks uh, for this opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you for being on today. So this is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash leadership myths. Again, sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash leadership myths. Uh, so as John mentioned, you know, Tori's back on the podcast. So he was, he's been, he was on when he was making his presidential bid. So as part of the campaign trail, you know, um, and then, uh, he was on at the convention in new Orleans, just, uh, he was on when we talked about the strategic Alliance and Tori has also joined the sports medicine broadcast just recently with Alicia Pennington when we were in Las Vegas. Uh, and that those episode that episode will be releasing later this year, um, there's also there's if you look at his bio there's lots of awards you know hall of fame inductee into illinois athletic trainers association published over a dozen articles uh, or been part of those glada award and it says the golden pinnacle which is the highest award that they offer um he was also the head athletic trainer of the year at the one of the d1 schools i'm sorry i forgot to write that down um and then also his wife and three children and i just just saw that uh tori you're your what looks like your oldest because it's listed first is named Jonah, and that's also the name of my firstborn son. So we got that in common. Nice. All right. So now we want to know something interesting or unique that wasn't included in your bio. Interesting or unique? Well, I think that that's a difficult thing because I think that's uh, defined by those that might or might not find it interesting or unique. Since you just talked about my children, I, I think there's um, plenty of interesting and unique. Uh, within uh, that group of three um, that we're really proud of. But um, we're excited to be empty nesters uh, nonetheless. And that's been, I think, pretty timely in terms of what opportunities the NATA presidency and continued work with the NATA board of directors has afforded. And so I won't lie when I say that, you know, from a life balance standpoint, I don't necessarily ignore Beth, but uh, having all three children out of the house, um, one of which is off the payroll, two of which are you know, highly successful in their own, um, you know, collegiate uh, careers, academically, socially, and uh, athletically for Evan, who's a volleyball player at NYU. I think it's timed out really nicely to be uh, NATA president during, uh, during this kind of phase of our life. So um, I don't know if that's unique or interesting, but um, I'll steer back to Evan. It's been much easier to tell stories and advocate for athletic trainers, um, advocate for standard of care at the collegiate level, advocate for 
uh, youth sports, healthcare, and, and raising standards there when I've had you know, three children uh, go through a variety of youth sports, um, have a collegiate collegiate athlete and, and Evan as a, as a volleyball player at NYU. And so, you know, relating to, to those stories and being relatable as a parent has, has been uh, a unique perspective that uh, a lot of uh, people have um, enjoyed hearing, you know, that kind of angle as well. So um, hope that's unique enough for you, Jaren. That'll work. That'll work. That works for me. Absolutely. So let's dive right into the questions that we had formulated from the book. I know um, we've talked about it so far throughout this series. We've taken a much deeper dive, a little bit more of a uh, a thought-provoking dive into the idea of leadership and, and leadership within athletic training. This book really does provide us with more of a mythological thought process uh, when it comes to leaders. So the book itself has three myths that's uh, encapsulate the idea of leadership um, from a historical standpoint and, and why we need to look at, at leadership through a different way. Uh, so first question, we wrongly believe that what happens in one leadership instance can be replicated in another. This leads to three myths which help us navigate the understanding of leadership. The first of these myths is the formulaic myth. Ignoring the reality that leadership is contextual, we feel that leaders stick to a strict checklist that leads to success. Tori, do you feel that the formulaic myth is effective in leading others? I don't believe that a checklist approach um, you know, can be appropriately or successfully instituted. Um, learn this lesson in a couple of different ways, both in athletic training leadership through service, as well as athletic training leadership and clinical leadership within the setting that I practice, which is the collegiate setting and having, you know, serve as the director of athletic training services and managing staff on a day-to-day -day basis um, in division three and uh, division one, non-power five, and then currently in division one, power five. And I, I only reference the different levels based on what type of, of um, you know, potential opportunities there can be with different resourcing and resourcing of, uh, of sports medicine programs. So what I've found is, you know, to be quite the opposite, which is, you know, the, the, the formulary approach or, you know, some of the standardization of, of how I can go into a conversation um, given the, the stakeholder that, that, I'm, that I'm working with directly and to be able to provide a, a way to maybe, you know, defend them or empower them or create, you know, opportunities for them to succeed uh, certainly isn't from, you know, one particular uh, s approach or one particular, you know, set of four or five things that I might want to check off in, in, in those conversations. So it very much is, you know, based on that individual person that I'm working with or a small group that I'm working with, or perhaps a staff and the varying differences of what those groups might look like in either athletic training leadership or within uh, clinical leadership. And so, you know, adaptability is, is critical and knowing your audience is, is critical as well, I think, to be an effective leader. Yeah, you want to rely on the individual strengths of those that are a part of your team, right? If you go with a standard checklist, it really doesn't apply to everybody's strengths. So somebody may be strong in one aspect and you want to apply that checklist to them and that may not 
help them prosper with their strengths. Uh, it, it helps you become a little bit more fluid rather than trying to have everything off of a checklist. It may seem easy to have everything off a checklist, but when you start applying to those, you realize that it's not a really good leadership trait. Yeah, in fact, that's become one of the strengths, I believe, of our program uh, here at Northwestern University in the sense that when we figured out as a group that our biggest strength could be capitalizing on individual strengths within uh, our clinical set, for one, but certainly um, it could be applied in other areas, uh, that we became stronger. So if we asked ourselves the question, if we knew some individual clinical strengths of every single one of our, you know, X number of staff members, which currently is 20, and we're able to capitalize on those individual clinical strengths, then how great could we be as a healthcare system? Uh, the same thing could apply to the NETA board of directors. And I've tried to take that same approach in identifying the strengths of individual district directors and what their own individual um, or even small group uh, collective strengths would be and be able to capitalize on those leadership strengths uh, in order to best serve our profession. You know, on Wednesday, we talked with Kevin Parker uh, and we discussed uh, the idea of heroes as leaders. And uh, that kind of leads into our next myth question. When we view leaders in hindsight, we see that their vision or mission can far outweigh those that surround the leaders themselves. The attribution myth questions, who is more important, the leader or the follower? Is both an answer? <laughs> it can be. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting because of the idea that, you know, if you're if you're a skilled leader, um, and that, that's certainly a wide definition of what skilled can be or not be, then you're taking into account those that you're leading and, you know, by definition, then the followers. So, you know, the, the mix of a leader that's able to respond and adapt, I mentioned that word before, uh, the versatility of the leader, to adapt to those that he or she is leading, which, you know, again, would be the followers, uh, allows for, you know, the building of strengths within that particular organization. Um, so I guess, you know, I, I don't want to cop out and say both. Um, I probably lean toward, you know, the, the opportunity that most leaders would have. And so maybe the leaders is, leader is slightly more important. Uh, but if they're doing, you know, their, their work effectively, then they are, you know, turning to those that they're leading uh, to help guide the group as opposed to it being more, you know, uh, kind of, you know, unilateral leadership, so to speak, um, you know, some leadership styles that, that I've come across as a follower. I've learned a lot from. Um, so that's part of this idea. And I, I like, you know, this debunking this myth uh, because I think we look up to our leaders oftentimes and are trying to glean from them in ways that we can you know, be better ourselves, but I think there's also a lot to be learned uh, from those that are ineffective as leaders. And I certainly have learned a lot, you know, won't name anybody, but a lot from those that I've worked along with. I thought, you know, that's, that's a trait that I don't want to have. That's an approach that I don't find effective as a follower. That, that is something that um, whatever that is X uh, in the moment is something that I will absolutely make every effort to avoid as a leader. So uh, I would lean toward the leader. Both are really, really important. Yeah. We learned a lot about that when we talked to Dr. Shingles in that, uh, the zealot section and the bad leaders, right? We, I've always felt, or at least in my more recent part of my career, I've, I've felt that I've learned more from the bad leaders 
in a, in a weird way uh, from the good leaders. You know, the good leaders are always going to be there and uh, they always have that, that wisdom to follow and, and learn from. But in a way, you can only learn from your own experiences when it comes to wisdom. And a lot of the times I've found that I've learned more from those bad leaders uh, and, and, and taken away what I shouldn't do in certain situations and, and dealing with other people, uh, and going forward. But it, it does prove the point that leadership is extremely contextual, right? Where, you know, a, a good leader can lead, but a lot of times it, it depends on the followers. So mm-hmm. it goes back, Jeremy, when we talked about, uh, extreme ownership, there are no bad teams. There's only bad leaders. Uh, and a lot of times people will feel that leadership is terrible, uh, or the teams are bad, but it really does come down to sometimes the leader. But if you don't have a strong team, if you don't have the right people pressing them, uh, that then the mission is never going to accomplish the vision, no matter how strong it is, is never going to be accomplished. So just taking a look at our football game last night traditionally like since i've been here this 13 years we have won four games one time and every other season has been less than four wins for football however last night when we were playing a school that's going to be making the playoffs either the third or fourth position in the playoffs um for the first half the score was 16 to 12 that first half like our kids were giving it everything they were aggressive they were playing hard and that's how they've been doing all season and like you said they're not a bad team they're just they're outmatched right but the leadership that they get gets that from gets the best that it can get from it gets the kids excited and in there it's most of the same kids that we had last year and so really is it's a change in in leadership that's made the biggest difference in the culture in just the one year here at my school. And so it's, it's really cool to see as we talk about this stuff, those changes there, that's really making the difference. And so, um, I kind of, I kind of agree that the leader is slightly more important because they have to take the strengths and they have to put those together and make them work together of what's already there. You just have to kind of bring it out. You almost rely on the individual strengths going back to that first myth in, in your team, right? It's, it's like a 51-49% uh, what's what's more important, but it's incredibly close, whether it's the team or the leader, right? But you talked about culture. How important is it to have the most appropriate culture in a team or in a leadership setting? Rhetorical or direct? <laughs> Both. Uh, well, I'll take it. Um, yeah, it's no doubt important, and it's the environment that you create, and that's you know part of why I've stopped using that C word because. I think too often people that I've been working with uh, from a, you know, from a leadership standpoint, um, you know, don't go beyond the word. Don't try to define the word. Um, We have to be able to define what we're talking about. Um, We have to be able to back it up. We have to be able to uh, demonstrate it on a day-to-day basis. Uh, So it's the environment uh, that you create. It's the behaviors that you're looking for. It's the behaviors that you're um, expecting and, and want to be demonstrated and then it's celebrating success when those behaviors are reflective of what the group values uh, and and that obviously requires you to define what you value as a group or as an organization um, in this case a, a healthcare organization um, or maybe a board of directors or um, an executive committee or or uh, any type of committee that, that you're a part of and so 
that to me is is the reminder and more important to continually define what you're what you're what you're seeking and what you're looking for um, versus just using the word and having the word be uh, be empty and not backed up uh, by the what and the why and the how. Right, so go a little bit more into just why you said you don't like to use the word culture. To me, it sounds like culture, you know, if you think about my culture, it's my grandparents, great grandparents, great, 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 great grandparents, that kind of thing. And what that history has done. And then if you think about the environment, it's kind of like the immediate area that you're in. Is that more or less why you try not to use cultures because it's too hard to change? No, I think what I'm trying to uh, get to is the, the actions of continually reminding each other and working together to sustain what we have established in terms of expectations and environment, which are all value-based and trying to surround our healthcare team, and I'm, again, pretty um, uh, exclusive right now in this discussion as an example uh, to our group at Northwestern. So, you know, continual reminders uh, as we've grown bigger as an organization. Um, when I started here at Northwestern, uh, I was a part of a, a staff of nine athletic trainers. Uh, we currently have 20 working directly with intercollegiate athletics and three more working uh, with our club sport athletes. And, and so when you get bigger, it's, it's critical. And, you know, there are examples of this that go from 20 to 200. So, you know, mine is, you know, basically doubling in size. So how do you manage to continue with new staff, um, but with staff that's spread out and, and multiple staff and you lose some of the intimacy, how do you do that? And, you know, what we're living every day should be that C word. Um, it's the environment and the behaviors and the actions that we take on that are value based. So I'll go back to values. And for us, it's things like enthusiasm, uh, valuing life balance, uh, valuing the importance of communication, uh, valuing teamwork, and then valuing professionalism. And those aren't given in any, any particular order. But if our organization understands and has defined, and we have taken the time to not only establish our values, but define what that looks like, then we are more apt um, to, to carry those things out by definition and carry those things out by behaviors with our patient population, with each other, uh, with our other stakeholders uh, within, you know, our healthcare organization, our, our physicians, our specialists, uh, interprofessional um, delivery of care, patient-centered care, all the things that we're striving to do, we lean back on our values. And then we celebrate our successes. And when we see teammates demonstrating value, uh, our values and demonstrating those behaviors, uh, we recognize those. <clears throat> Everything that I talked about leans in on what, you know, we've defined as our own culture. Um, but to simply say, you know, culture is important to us um, without defining it, uh, I think is it's, it becomes um, uh, potential cop out or it becomes empty. Um, and that's how you lose that consistency in the environment and the behaviors is to only talk about it as a one word versus uh, a full definition of what you're looking for. Do you ever see those motivational posters that are up in office buildings? Mm -hmm. the, the ones that read, you know, uh, drive on or whatever. And it's just a simple picture. You know, the first time you see it, it, it has a little bit of meaning to it. And it's like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to attack my Monday. And then Tuesday comes around and Wednesday curls around. And it's like that, that picture means absolutely nothing to us anymore. Mm -hmm. It's almost kind of what you're talking about, right? It's the action. 
of driving towards your meaning and, and what your values are that will continuously uh, reinforce what you want out of those things, right? It's easier to, to put a picture on the wall that says, this is what our culture is, but never act on it. The more you act on it, the more meaning your culture has, the more meaning your, uh, your community has in accomplishing what you want done and, and what your goals are for the year. At the beginning of the year, we created a seven goal poster uh, that hangs up in my office. And that's for my staff that we look at. And I realized that the first couple of times when we went over those goals, what our daily goals are, what we want to accomplish with our student athletes, uh, it had a lot more meaning to it. And, and we attacked our day and attacked our, uh, our student athletes with more meaning and value. And, and then we didn't look at it or it's, it's right in front of me, but I didn't see it. Mm-hmm. And I think a week ago, somebody had said something about it. And I said, you know what? It's funny because it's right in front of me, but I haven't looked at it. And I need to reevaluate those things because are we accomplishing those goals that we set forth two months ago? And when we were able to do that, then we had more meaning going back into that day. You know, so as soon as two thirty hit, school lets out. We had uh, we had more emphasis on how we were going about our day and 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 talking with our student athletes and communicating with coaches and um, and doing evals and rehabilitation. We had more meaning to those things. So it is easy to put a poster up. And say this is what it is, but if you don't attach meaning to it and you don't uh, act on it, then you, you, there's really no point in doing it anymore, right? Yeah, those are really good examples. It's it's kind of like um, I, I liken it to uh, a clinical analogy of you know early in our career we were told by our mentors and by our professors to stop calling you know medial or lateral shin pain um, shin splints. Shin splints to me is, is like a garbage pail term, like culture. Um, you can say culture, you can chase, say shin splints, but you have to define it uh, for it to have any type of meaning um, for those that you're working alongside it. We say that leadership is a process of driving groups of people towards outcomes. Productive leaders require others to find sense of purpose and meaning in what they represent. Tori, how important is it to have meaning in our profession? Uh, it's critical, and I'll stick back to the you know home example here of our clinical team. Is early on in the onboarding process and transition to practice process here, uh, we talk a lot about purpose. Um, that's one of the most important things that that our leadership team can do uh, for new ATs within our system is is make sure that they understand uh, their purpose. There are other things that are important like autonomy. Um, and the ability to be innovative and support an innovative and curious environment. But, you know, purpose is critical. We in athletic training probably haven't done a good enough job of, of not necessarily emphasizing a job description, but paying attention to a job description and assuring that when healthcare providers are leading other healthcare providers, that job descriptions are appropriate, that they're well-written, they're as robust as they need to be, but they're also flexible. Um, it's a good place to start when you're thinking about purpose, uh, but purpose, you know, also bleeds into, you know, what other roles and what other expectations, you know, the group or the leader has for those that they're working with and and in their own particular team. And so we really try to define and then revisit purpose throughout that first year of of work within uh, our athletic training team, and and I found that to be. Uh, I don't know how long ago we 
started to emphasize purpose. Uh, but once we did, it's it's really helped. Um, and I can go into some more of the subtle differences, but you know, different. Just briefly, you know, different patient populations, um, you know, have a, a different defined purpose uh, within you know our organization. Um, some of the stakeholders are, are different. Um, that might be the coaches. That might be the parent population. Um, that might be the student athlete uh, or patient population specifically. And, and, and that is part of what we, we visit and revisit. And, um, you know, other things that might relate to healthcare administration and some of the duties uh, that, that we spread throughout our staff lend to that purpose and help empower people to feel like they're really contributing on a day-to-day -day basis. And we try to recognize that as well, instead of taking for granted all the things that we expect. Um, and that's also part of, I think, the 360 of, of making sure the purpose is, is well-defined and then revisited. Obviously, you've had a lot of opportunity to be in leadership. Do these leadership opportunities follow you because you're a, a leader or do the, the opportunities are there and then you follow them? You have to seek them out, in my opinion. I, I don't think they've ever really found me. I think there have been opportunities maybe on occasion where I've been asked to participate in something. I've always looked at it as uh, they need additional help or, you know, <laughs> some additional effort um, and more person power versus, oh, they're seeking me out because I might be able to bring you know, something to the table. Maybe that's a little self-deprecating, but I've never really thought of something as having found me. I've always approached it as I've got to find it and have a specific path in terms of my career and then have a lot of uh, really intentional choices when it's come to service and how leadership, you know, along the lines of, of service within uh, multiple organizations uh, have been a choice that I've made and things that I've sought out to do and, some of those were connected to elections that I've uh, been fortunate enough to win and others, you know, have simply just been me raising my hand. And, you know, those are some of the things that I like to talk to young professionals and students about that, you know, giving back to the profession can come in a number of different ways. A lot of students look at either when they're hearing me speak or when they're, you know, just thinking about their mentors, they only look at running for an office within a state association or district or national and, you know, giving back to the profession. There are a number of examples. Uh, Jeremy's a, a really great example of owning his own impact in the profession and creating, you know, what he has created with his podcast. There are so many scholarly activity opportunities. There are so many ways to get involved and that give back has usually, you know, been by choice for me and then has led to some, some really cool leadership opportunities based on the people I've been able to work with. I appreciate the the kind words there, and I don't feel like I was ever intentional about finding those. There was um, a time where I helped with the GHAT's website, and you know I made a big difference there. But it was really just we were in a meeting, and they said, "Hey, we, the guy doing the website is kind of retiring from doing it. We need somebody that can do it." And I said, "Oh well, I, I might be able to do it. Tell me more about it." And so it really was just that same opportunity. Like I raised my hand and said, "I can help." And then from there, I met lots of other people who are leaders and athletic trainers and have created those friendships. And that's opened up other opportunities. And I was asked to help with like the SWATA website and this and thing, things like that. And, and so for me, it wasn't intentional. Like I wasn't like, okay, I want to be here. These are the steps I need to get here. It was just like, here, I can help. I can help. And then now I'm, I'm seeing that. But honestly, in general, I would say my life, like I'm not a 
a goal setter. I'm just kind of like, all right, well, let's just go for it. Let's just see what happens. And so I think if I had been more of a goal setter, or even today, if I was still more of a goal setter, I could see those opportunities coming about because I said, okay, well, this is where I want to be. And again, I think it's fantastic that you're sharing with young professionals about setting goals because maybe somebody did share with me and I just didn't listen, but I don't feel like I had somebody saying, hey, you need to set a goal. Think about your future. What do you want to do in the long run? You know, I found the times that I've reached out for, you know, leadership positions and and I didn't get them. Um, they, it wasn't meant to be. And, and we talked about the ego, right? We want to have that ego kind of melt away or have a negative ego. Uh, and the times when I've tried to be more humble, um, leadership positions have found me. Mm-hmm. And when they find you, it's more impactful on a personal level because you become more of a servant for the people that you want to serve. Yeah, I totally agree. It's, it's, it's a really well stated, um, you know, approach. And I don't think that's, you know, just dumb luck. I think that's, that probably happens, uh, very much how you described it. All right. So next big question we're, if we're changing the word from culture to environment, we're, we're reshaping or redefining athletic training. How, do we continue to redefine leadership in athletic training? These are really good steps. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of opportunity in our profession to build better mentoring um, relationships, not only to emphasize the importance of mentoring, but to do a better job and, and being a little more formal about what good mentoring really looks like. I think that, that number one opportunity for us right now is is ongoing. Uh, preceptors make incredible mentors, but good preceptors make even better than incredible mentors. And so, you know, developing better preceptors in our athletic training education, you know, programs and being a great preceptor is one of those ways to give back to the profession that we talked about. And, you know, the preceptor uh, development comes, you know, f- can come very formally and, and so we've done that, um, NATA and, and some of our committees underneath the umbrella of the ECE have the preceptor uh, training uh, modules that I w- would encourage anyone uh, who's working uh, with athletic training students on a regular basis uh, to look very strongly at because better mentoring, better clinical education through our preceptors is a way for our profession uh, to advance. What that gets into is soft skills. It gets into professional preparation. It gets into, you know, better understanding of post-professional education opportunities. And we're certainly at a crossroads there as a profession with, you know, the the degree change, which then leads to the elimination of a long time, you know, kind of uh, automatic post-professional opportunity or track with the graduate assistantships. And with those going away, you know, students are wondering what, what is that for me? What is that going to look like? So I go back to better mentors, better educated, um, better clinical preceptors across the board. That along with better definition of what transition to practice is, and these all meld together, uh, which we're also doing and creating setting by setting uh, with, with the different committees under the umbrella of NATA uh, that are setting based and identifying more clearly what transition to practice means for an athletic trainer 
in a rehabilitation uh, clinical setting, an athletic trainer uh, working with a physician, an athletic trainer working at the secondary school setting, and we know what the settings are. So that's going to be a big step as well. So back to your original question, uh, I think it starts with better mentors and um, our opportunities to to help generation by generation understand a lot more than just what they're learning within their AT program. I am a currently a mentor for my new coworker. So Sophia graduated in 2017. This is her first full-time job at a at a high school in our district has a mentorship program. And so I was talking to I think I was talking to John um earlier this week and I have to do like 20 hours worth of mentor training on how to be a mentor and you know honestly I was like this is really ridiculous like 20 hours you could have shown me how to use the software in one hour and been been done right but then uh, now having this conversation with you Tori it's like okay maybe I do need to learn how to be a better mentor rather than just somebody there with her but continuing to check in on her and asking her those questions what do you need right now how do you feel like we're doing on this what can we improve you know asking her for reflection on on what she's done and so I I really appreciate that this is what we're moving towards as an organization, as NATA, as uh, athletic trainers, is creating better mentors because it will reshape what we're doing. And, you know, it's really cool that John's doing this, that you're mentioning this, that it's actually playing out in my life right now. Cause, cause for me, that really like reaffirms, like this is the right thing to do, continue doing this. And then, you know, we're looking at the university of Houston as a really good MAT program. And once, uh, she's settled here in her position, then we want to bring on a, a student so that she can be a preceptor there as well and create that same environment and create the same opportunity for growth and questions and learning. And so <clears throat> I'm, I'm glad that uh, we're doing this as an organization. Yeah, and hats off to you. I'll let John, I know John's ready to jump in as well. One of the things that you're describing, I left out of that, which is the professional preceptor. That's also what healthcare looks like in terms of transition to practice. And so I'm not telling you, Jeremy, that you're not a mentor for her, um, but you're probably, and you don't know it, you're, you're, you're really, because of the organization that you're working in together, much more of a professional preceptor. And that's something that we have not done um, at all as a profession. And she needs both. And she needs both for the rest of, um, you know, her career, especially as a young professional, but we can carry professional preceptors, you know, people we can lean on within our organization besides our supervisor uh, to point us in the right direction. And that's some of what you're doing, but I'm sure you're also doing some of the things that mentors do, which, you know, are <clears throat> let's talk through that discussion or conversation you had with the parent and how did that feel? And let's talk about your future goals as a professional. Um, so there's some subtle differences uh, but highlighting what a professional preceptor can do, that's what healthcare looks like. And that's a really important step for us. Yeah, it's so incredibly important to 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 be a mentor and, and to have a mentor yourself. I, I found that being a mentor with my interns and, and the interns that have passed and, and have become professionals uh, to keep that contact, it's not just for them, it's for the mentor themselves. It's It keeps you fresh. It keeps you engaged. It keeps you... Um, you know, it, it gives you more meaning in your day-to-day practice as an athletic trainer. And that's what I've found over the recent years is the more I've put into my interns, the more I've gotten back 
from it. And that has been so incredibly impactful for me uh, to that. Uh, hopefully I'm making a difference with them, uh, but I'm also making a difference within their student athletes lives um, and, and our community in our area that we uh, continue to work in. Well said. So I, on the recent um, on an episode of Polos and Khakis with Dan and Lizzie, you stated uh, ATs need to take care of their own shop and be the best professional they can be. And that's is very similar to one of my new favorite authors, uh, Jordan Peterson, who states, set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. A lot of times we see some athletic trainers have almost a nihilistic tendency and um, become very disillusioned with the profession. Uh, how important is it for us to be the pre best professional and to take care of our own shop per se before we go out and um, have a negative outlook on the profession? It's essential. And I, I would argue, and I'm trying to advocate for this idea and, and wrote about it uh, early in one of my NATA news, um, you know, articles. If that happens and if, you know, we, we first have to define what that is, and I'm not sure we've done a good job of doing that, but, you know, d define some of the pillars of, of being a good to great professional, um, that is going to push our profession forward. That is going to raise the tide for all, and that's going to, you know, better shape what the view and, and each of us has have that role and have that a potential impact with those that see what we do on a daily basis, and that's our outside stakeholders that can be advocates for athletic training or may choose not to because the example that they're looking at on a day-to-day -day basis or a, a one circumstance basis, if it's a per DMAT, if it's a, you know, an injury to their child at a secondary school, um, it, it's their snapshot of athletic training. And so, you know, taking care of our own, you know, space first, um, house, maybe perfect's a little strong of a word that you used uh, with the, the author that you spoke of, but, you know, doing the best we can to take care of, of our space first that's going to do so much, um, a, t a ton really, uh, for us professionally. Then you probably, if you're doing those things, you probably don't have that negative attitude because you're probably showing your value to a higher level. That's going to create a better working environment for you. It's going to give you more ground to stand on, to negotiate for a better salary, for better working conditions. Um, part of taking care of your own house is going to make sure that you have other colleagues that you connect with. Um, even if you're an athletic trainer who's, you know, flying solo um, in any setting, but let's again look at the secondary school setting. If you've connected with other ATs in your conference and you have those 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 relationships to, you know, to to build best practices off of each other and discuss the ways in which everybody can be better, you're going to be better and have less complaints. I can keep going, but you know, the idea is if you you know, take a really strong look and take care of you first. Um, and I didn't even touch on self-care, but it's also a part of that. Um, that's going to make you more emotionally intelligent. Uh, and that's going to play into job satisfaction. Then you probably have less to complain about. And if and when you can look in the mirror and feel like you've managed yourself to the best of your ability and all those areas um, are, are covered and some of the pillars uh, that I wrote about, then, then, Sure. Um, let's have a conversation about ways in which maybe your organization can support you better. Um, you can have a different or better <clears throat> platform from which to advocate 
uh, for yourself or for your patient population. And maybe there's an opportunity there for the organization um, with you alongside of others uh, to create more solutions uh, for some of the challenges that we have. Um, that would be that would be something that I would uh, that I would look to fondly and, and smile pretty wide to know that that's happening. Um, that's certainly an opportunity for us to get better. I think that was a great great answer for those athletic trainers that may question what is something that the NATA or others are doing for them. Well, what are you doing for yourself to create your own value first before relying on the other people? I think when I started to do that more in my my career, I realized I was gaining more from myself uh, and, and more for my athletes than relying on other people um, because I didn't take ownership of those things at first. And uh, we talked with uh, Dr. Games earlier in the in the season, and uh, we talked about creating that value within ourselves, but through self care, and that's so incredibly important. I think sometimes people become disillusioned with the work-life balance type uh, phrase, almost like the culture phrase that we talked about. You know, people rely on that a little bit more than acting upon it. And if they don't act upon it, then they're not going to get anything out of it. And they will become disillusioned with the idea of um, their own value if, if they don't take some ownership. Absolutely. Jeremy, do you have any other questions? It really is just a matter of me listening to people who have, have gone a little bit further on the journey and relating my story so that somebody else that's a little further behind on, on the story. Um, so that again, just like we've been talking about mentoring, bringing people up, you know, through the podcast, I hear a lot, a lot. There are people like, Hey, thanks for sharing your story. It, you know, this really helped. Um, you know, I really enjoyed listening and that kind of thing. And that, that's what this is all about. So I get to learn from John, who's, you know, an avid reader and I get to read, learn from Tori or Dr. Shingles. And, um, and then I get to bring other people up with me. And so I, I appreciate everybody that's been part of this series. Um, and so Tori, what else do you have? What piece would you like to leave us with? Uh, or what, what would you like to push us towards as we close out this podcast? Well, I would tell you that this is something that's been on the mind of, of me for a long time and our and, and more recently our, our board of directors. All the things that we've talked about today are areas in, within clinical leadership that just don't make it into our, our very tightly cramped educational standards, those that we've had, those that we'll have in the future. And so as a profession and as a, an organization, mindful of that, we're in the midst of creating uh, opportunity for, you know, advanced education around clinical leadership. Um, I don't want to give away too much or make any promises because it's still in the develop developmental stage, but you know, taking, you know, some of the concepts that, that John, you're pushing forward within this platform that Jeremy's created uh, are great steps, but I know that there's ATs out there that want to learn more. They want to learn more how to get to um, a supervisory position, get to a leadership role, get to a director role. Again, that's um, regardless of setting, whether it's within industrial athletic training or all of our variety of settings, oftentimes, you know, we hear of ATs asking other mentors, you know, how'd you become a head athletic trainer? We don't want to focus just on a particular setting like a secondary school or a collegiate, but that's kind of the concept. Whoever taught you how to be a head AT, Sometimes we just get uh, pushed into those positions or seniority wins, or it just seems like it's our turn. 
but we have to have more effective leaders. Um, that's going to lead to better patient care, and it's going to lead for better advocates for the profession. It's going to promote the profession in a better way. It's going to keep athletic trainers in athletic training if our supervisors as healthcare providers are better supervisors. So mindful of that, we're, we're looking forward to launching a leadership program um, that is going to you know, going to be just that. It's going to have fundamental concepts, and then it's going to have break-off opportunities uh, for, you know, for ATs to think specific about the setting that they want uh, to become um, a leader in and take on some of those setting-specific clinical leadership things. But, again, going back to some of the fundamental things that great leadership looks like, especially in healthcare, is, is where we're going to start. And so foundationally, um, we'll, we'll likely have a partnership with um, a respected and, and prominent um, educational entity. And um, we're just really excited about taking things that you're working with, um, with the podcast and others have as well, and, and trying to put it out to, to athletic trainers as another huge member benefit that the NATA provides. So more to come on that. I, I just I say that in closing because – you know, this scratches the surface on what uh, both of you have discovered is a really, really key topic area. And it's big, but a really key topic area for athletic trainers on how they want to improve. So thank you. Well, thank you. Absolutely. I, I, I think, um, Jeremy and I, this is something that has found us and, and we've been able to with through Jeremy's platform and, um, you know, I, we're going to, I'm going to talk about this next week, uh, with our last podcast of the series. Um, but you know, just Jeremy and I finding each other, uh, and, and being able to have these conversations that have led to this, that have led to, uh, this virtual mentorship with others. Um, and that has been for me, been able to share this, you know, being able to share these messages, um, has been so incredibly invigorating for my profession, for my career, that um, it, it, it's something I never expected. And, and I'm really glad to be a part of it and, and to have you a part of it and uh, to have everybody this, this season, um, you know, our guests have been amazing in showing these different types of leadership traits and, uh, and, and helping uh, the, the athletic trainers on their own out there in the middle of, uh, you know, somewhere, in their own little high school, uh, and, and just allowed them to become more empowered within the profession and within their practice. Awesome. And thank you both for your leadership. This is, this is really important work. Thank you. So I like to close, uh, all these shows with uh, a closing thought. And, um, I, I was looking through the book and, uh, I was telling Jeremy before we got on, I couldn't find, I was trying to find a, a good clothing thought closing thought. And, uh, just, I, am actually going to take the last paragraph from the whole book itself as the closing thought, uh, because it's a great closing paragraph because it wraps everything up in a nice bow. And, um, it, it reads, and this is straight from general Stanley McChrystal. It is impossible to master the countless variables of leadership to guarantee a perfect result. Ultimately, the best you can do is increase the possibility of success. Failure rides alongside, but success demands accepting the risk. I found that being confident in my commitment, but humble about my ability to control the outcome is the best I can do. We choose to lead or decide not to. We often won't control whether we succeed or fail, 
or whether we're celebrated or excoriated for what we do, but we can control what we generally try to do, and perhaps that is how we should be hoped to judge. All right, so this is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash leadership myths. Again, we've been talking about leaders, uh, myths versus reality. We've got Tori Lindley, John Seco, and then obviously me. So, uh, Tori, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, I have your email as tori at northwestern.edu. Is that the preferred way for any of the guests to get a hold of you? Sure, that works. Um, also, you can DM at Tori Lindley on Twitter. All right. So you can reach out at Tori Lindley on Twitter. And then, you know, as we've mentioned before, multiple times, John Seco's best way to get a hold of him is on Twitter. And uh, thank you for all the action that we've been seeing on, on Twitter since John started the series. Uh, every day when I open up Twitter, there's 10, 20 notifications or whatever it is. And so it's been really cool. Uh, and I want to encourage you to keep up sharing your story, tweeting us, messaging, email whatever it is, um, maybe some takeaways that you've had as just John and I have realized things throughout the course of this conversation. So you can get Tori Lindley on Twitter, or you can get John Seco, which is J-O-H-N-C-I-E. I think I spelled C- your name wrong. C-K-O. C-K-O. Yeah, I yep. put it wrong in the notes. Um, <laughs> so look for John Seco, or you can go anywhere on the Sports Medicine Broadcast, and you can uh, type either of those names in the search engine. Cause like I said, Tori's been on about five different times. John's been on about like 50 different times. So, um, sports medicine, broadcast.com slash leadership myths. So for John, Tori and Jeremy and the sports medicine broadcast, that is a wrap. Thanks.